We're in the midst right now of Jeremiah's book of consolations. Back chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, says the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. The Lord says I will also bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. And that kicks off this, this book within the scroll, the book of consolations. And the key phrase of these, this four chapter book is, Chene Yamim Ba'im. Would you repeat that after me? Chene <laughs> Yamim Ba'im, it's Hebrew, it means, Behold, days are coming. Behold, days are coming. You hear this several times, especially right here. Jeremiah uses it several times in his book, but right here in these four chapters, you hear it more than anywhere else. And that's the key phrase, Behold, days are coming. This is good news. This is comfort. This is consolation. This is encouragement in a very dark time in Israel's history. Behold, days are coming. And the key concept in this section is grace. Grace, grace, grace. Sunday I had a conversation with a sister who was adamant about a few things, asking if we did Shabbat services, if we kept Pesach, Passover, if we paid attention to the feasts of Israel. And the more I listened, the more I realized that what she was asking is, are we... Messianic as a church. Now you need to know, I think you do know, if you've been here any amount of time, I love Israel. And I am a, if you want to call me this, a Christian Zionist, fine with me. I believe in the right that people have to the land. I believe you'll see that very clearly after we're done tonight. But, even Israel's salvation is not contingent on the keeping of feasts and sacrifices and traditions, and law. The whole purpose of the law was to bring people to faith, realizing that the law was unkeepable by any human effort. Romans 5, verse 20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace. Galatians 3.24 says the law has become our tutor to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. I honor the law. We've taught through the law. And yet it is not the law that saves us. The law brings us to faith. And then Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And just to cap it all off, John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Would we have a Passover meal here sometime? Yes, and as a matter of fact, we have. To observe and to consider and to think about Jesus and the Passover, it was great. We may do that again in the future. But to focus on these things, to try to be Jewish almost, And some churches do that. Jewish wannabes. I've had Jewish friends tell me, why would you want to be Jewish? (laughs) Bottom line, grace is not 
just a New Testament concept. It is a God concept. It is the very manifestation of His love, as we'll see tonight. So we pick up in chapter 31 with that in mind that this is about grace. Verse 1, At that time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Hebrew word for grace there is Cain. There are two primary words that that speak of grace in the Hebrew. Cain is one of them. It's favor, it's compassion. Now I mentioned Pesach, the Passover. That was yesterday on the Jewish calendar. Passover celebrated by Jews the world over, looking back to the Jewish deliverance out of the land of Egypt through the wilderness. And while it's true that the Lord showed the children of Israel grace in the wilderness, that's not what he's talking about in these two verses. Prophet's not talking about Israel in the wilderness having left Egypt. It's not what this passage is referring to. Jeremiah is not looking back. He's looking forward. How do you know? Well, the question we have to ask is, when did they find grace? Verse 1 begins, at that time. At what time? you got to bump back another verse. Verse 24 of chapter 30, which by the way in the Hebrew Bible is verse 1 of chapter 31. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has performed and until He has accomplished the intent of His heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord. The grace in the wilderness is not looking back, it is looking forward. The time reference for this promise, grace in the wilderness, is future. Then why does it sound past? It's a proleptic phrase. It's a statement that is so certain, it's written as if it's already happened. For example, he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2. Are you seated in the heavenly places? Granted, the seats are better than they used to be. (laughs) But this is not heavenly. And yet the Bible says we are seated, have been seated, past tense. Amen. Well, that's a proleptic phrase. It is so certain, God says it as though it's already taking place. But the Exodus is a past analogy of a future event. A day when Israel, surviving the sword, will find grace, having found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest, by the way, that's another clue, because the Hebrew writer tells us Israel did not come to their place of rest. They have not yet found, they haven't yet entered their rest. It's a future event. Israel coming into their rest. So what is he talking about in verse 2 there? Well, Isaiah prophesied about it. Isaiah chapter 16. You can look that up and read it. Study it out. John saw it in the revelation of Jesus chapter 12 verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Revelation 12.14 says the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time, again, that's three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. Grace in the wilderness. Jeremiah is looking for prophesying of that time when those who have survived the sword, the onslaught of the nations of the world led by Antichrist will find grace in the wilderness. They will find their rest, finally. 
It's the hopeful end we talked about in Jeremiah 29.11. Grace. And see, that's what God offers. I even like the phrase, grace in the wilderness. Maybe that's what you need. Because God offers grace for the wanderer. And favor for the famished. Mercy for the thirsty. Grace in the wilderness. A hopeful end for those who are lost. Grace is simply the revelation of God's love. See, God's love is who He is. God is love, John tells us, John chapter 4. So grace is the manifestation of that love. It is that love played out before our eyes. It's that love in action. Grace. His love revealed. And looking both backward and forward, we see and we hear of God's love for Jacob. Look at verse 3. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. And there it is again, grace. That's the second word for loving, for, for grace in the Hebrew. Loving kindness, chesed. Chesed is mercy, it's goodness, it's grace. Both Hebrew words, chesed and Cain, describe redemption as a work of grace by faith. Redemption not as an earning by the people keeping the law. Even Israel would come to know grace, not law. Because this is where God was headed with His people as well as with us. Messiah came to Israel not to show them how to do the law, though He kept it perfectly. He came to Israel to bring grace by faith. Remember what Jesus said in John 6.28 This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The Jewish people were freaked out by that. What must we do to work the works of God? Which laws are most important? What must we keep? How should we do this right? They had rabbis telling them all kinds of different things they had to do. And Jesus lowers the boom marvelously and says, You want to know what works required of you? Believe in Him whom He has sent. I mean, like, can you imagine the whole crowd just letting out a breath and saying, really? Faith. Just believe in Him. That's all you got to do. Faith in His grace. Not faith in your ability to keep righteous, to keep laws, to, to observe certain days and feasts on the calendar. Again, I will build you, verse 4, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. The hills of Samaria. Today, Palestinians and many pundits and propagandists refer to the hills of Samaria as the West Bank. They contend that any Jew living there is part of an illegal occupation of Palestinian territory. As one Israeli member of the Knesset said just last week of President Obama's visit, he said, how can land that belongs to you be called occupied? (laughs) This is our land, is what he's saying. And the truth is, as per God's design, the Jewish people are already planting on the hills of Ephraim. They're called settlements, again by the media, occupation, the occupied territories. But these are the hills of Samaria. This is land given to the people of Israel by God. Shiloh's on that land. 
Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim on that land. Shechem. Hebron. Jerusalem. Is on what they call the West Bank. This is God's land given to God's people. And a day is coming. When they will fully enjoy the fruit of their labor. But not only... Will they plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria? Someone else is there. Someone else appears to be on these hills of Samaria with the Jewish people. Verse 6, There will be a day when watchmen on the hills of of Ephraim call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Who are these watchmen? We've talked about this before. They are the church, I believe. Well, why would you say that? Watchmen, the word is not sar. It is rooted in, or actually it's the root word for the word netzer. Netzer, which means branch. Netzer is where the word Nazareth comes from. Nazareth, branch town. Natsar, the watchmen who, who branch out. And even as Jesus was called a Nazarene, back in the first century, guess what they used to call Christians? Nazarenes. Natsar. And so this name that was called Jesus, that was also called Christians, here we see A day will be when the watchmen on the hills of Israel call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. And the Lord says, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. He doesn't say, Jacob, sing aloud with gladness. He says, You watchmen, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, for my people. You watchmen, they they have some, some jobs to do. Responsibilities. It's threefold here in the passage. Number one, the watchmen point the way up to Jerusalem. See, they're on the hills of Samaria. And so those making their way to Jerusalem for feasts, for festivals, for celebration and worship, the watchmen say, keep going. It's right up there. See, this is why I want you all to go to Israel. So you'll know the way. So you can be a watchman on the hills of Ephraim and know which way Jerusalem is. Because if you've never been there, you're going to be like, um, just keep going. You'll get there, I guess, eventually. Watchmen on the hills of Ephraim, pointing the way up to Jerusalem. Secondly, the watchmen are to pray for the people. To point the way and to pray for the people. Psalm 122. We had a Jewish guide tell us that he believes Psalm 122 is for Gentiles. It says in verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. And this is why he said this. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will say, may peace be within you. It's those who look at Israel, look at the Jewish people as brothers and friends. And we say, may peace be in you. Praying for the peace of Jerusalem, pointing the way up to Jerusalem, and finally proclaiming the salvation of the remnant of Israel. Proclaiming their salvation. Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Save your people. Isaiah 62 verse 1. The prophet said, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness. And her salvation like a torch that is burning. 
Isaiah 62, verse 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. Part of our prayer is reminding the Lord to keep His faithfulness to Israel. Oh, not that He would forget. Not that He wouldn't be faithful. But we are called upon to remind Him of His promises. To be part of the process. And so we proclaim the salvation of the remnant of Israel. I believe that we are called to be watchmen. Watchmen for Israel. I believe that's the number one reason for making a trip to the land at all, is to go as a watchman, to go as an encourager, to see the land and to be there for the people's sake. Now, listen to the Lord's response to the watchman's prayers. As they pray, as they proclaim, as they sing and give praise, He says in verse 8, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, and they will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water, on a straight path in which they will not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Lord, what are you talking about Israel for? I mean, at this point, Israel's toast. They're history. They're non-existent. The kingdom of Israel was wiped out 150, 180 years prior. Why are you talking about Israel? Because He's going to bring Israel back, He says. Even at the time where Judah is about to be driven out of the land, He's thinking of all His people. I am a father to Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden. And note this, they will never languish again. It is a promise again in future days. In the latter days. In the end days. Speaking of a time when Israel would never again languish. You see, after 722 B.C. they languished. After 586 B.C. they would languish again. After 70 A.D. they would languish again. Since the Holocaust... They languish different places around the world and even in the land. There's no real peace there. This is a time when they will never languish again. But note this. How does the saving of Jacob come about? By his hard work? By his effort? By by keeping the feasts and the Sabbaths and the sacrifices and the law? Of course not. That's one of the things that's so marvelous about this passage is Verse 11 says, The Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him. It is 100% the work of the Lord, not the work of the people. The Lord does this. Revelation 5.9 is a portion of the song of the raptured church. You've heard me say this before. I love these sections of Revelation because it's us singing. We get to see what we're going to sing before we sing it. Which is great. We get to learn the lyrics now. 
And the song says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain, and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The redemption is of God. The grace is His. Verse 13 says, Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Jeremiah understood something all too well. And this really hit me this week as I was studying. Jeremiah knew, I think better than anybody else, that teaching the Word can be tough. It's hard work. Not because study is difficult. Not because the Word is hard to understand. It's tough to teach when you know it's not being received. And for Jeremiah, that was the case. You know, he taught and he taught and he taught. 25 years of his life, not a single convert, not a single believer, no one listened to him. Tough teaching. When the Word is heard, but it's not done. When it's fed upon, but it's not acted upon. When you see no result of the Word. But here, note this, and I love it. It says, I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance. Note this, the souls of the priests are saturated, literally with abundance, saturated with fat. That's what it says. I'm going to fill up the soul of the priest with fat. And you know what fills up the soul, the mind, the intellect of a priest, a pastor, a spiritual leader more than anything else? It's the success of the Word. That fills up the priest. That brings meaning to his teaching. The response of the people to the Word. I've got an example for you. Think about Jesus. He had just had this remarkable conversation, a teaching conversation with a woman at a well in a town called Sikar. The town is near Shechem. It's right at the base of Mount Gerizim. And Jesus let the apostles go on into the town to buy food. And he's sitting out there and begins to speak to this woman, not a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Shouldn't have been talking to her. And she was a woman, alone. Shouldn't have been talking to her. And she's out there drawing the water at the well at noon. This conversation is marvelous. And then the apostles come back as she's leaving. What's this all about? And they sit down and they begin to talk to him. And they are urging him, John 4.31 saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus, you've got to have something to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. What's he saying? The soul of the priest was saturated. Jesus was full. He couldn't eat another bite. Why? Because he was so overjoyed, so filled up with the fact that his word was going out. That his word was at that moment, even as they were saying, Jesus, eat something. He's like, you know, I am so full right now because I happen to know in Sikar, in the city, people are getting saved. Because my word got into the heart of this woman and now my word is getting into the hearts of the city. People are getting saved. It filled Jesus up. And that's what happens. The souls of the priests are saturated when the souls of the people are satisfied. And note that's also what he says. My people will be satisfied with my goodness. The Hebrew word for satisfied there is sabah. And it means to have your fill. To be satiated. 
Which means for us today, no more chasing after empty enticements. Let the Lord satisfy you. No more pursuing vain pleasures or futile schemes. All the things in life that we think are going to satisfy us, no, total satisfaction in the goodness of God. As David wrote in Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. And to those who fear Him, there is no want. To walk in that relationship, to feed on His Word, to know the goodness of God. The souls of the priests will be saturated. The souls of the people will be satisfied at this day that Jeremiah prophesies about. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Your work will be rewarded. What work? What work is going to be rewarded? Believing in Him whom He has sent. That's what the work of God is. Remember what Jesus said. Your work will be rewarded. The voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. It's the birthplace of of Samuel. It's the most, most elevated border town between Israel and Judah. And it's significant here. First, because as Jeremiah chapter 40 verse 1 tells us, Ramah was the staging ground for the deportation. All the Jews who were being taken into exile were taken to Ramah, and from there were sent off to Babylonian exile. So this was the place it was happening. That's why the weeping was going on. That's, that's the sorrow, that's the tears happening. That's why Ramah is called out, no doubt. The weeping in Ramah was that of mothers of the children being sent off into exile. And Rachel best portrays this. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Why Rachel? Well, a couple of reasons. First off, she's Jacob's wife. So you could call her the mother of Israel, although she's not the mother of all twelve boys. She was the mother of two of them. But she was his beloved bride And the mother of two. Remember which two were Rachel's sons? Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph, through whom came Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim, the name often given to northern Israel, the entire northern kingdom. Benjamin, who was connected with Judah in the southern kingdom. And so the whole point is Rachel's weeping for her children. Northern Israel and southern Israel. The north and the south. Those lost in 722, those about to be lost in 586. All of the children are being lost. Rachel is weeping for her children. And it's a beautiful picture of the sorrow over the loss of the land for all of Israel, not just for Judah. Now you Bible students know Matthew took it a step further. He assigns this prophecy to Herod's slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem, Rachel's tears. Matthew 2.16 tells us, Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, Matthew says. 
A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But if this prophecy is fulfilled in the loss of the people from the land, how then can Matthew say it's fulfilled in the slaughter of the innocents in and around the vicinity of Bethlehem? What this shows us, gang, is how far-reaching prophecy really is. That there is often more than a singular fulfillment. That the fulfillment of prophecy is often broader than we expect. Broader than we might think. And in this case, not only did it speak of the loss of the land back in 722 and 586, but it also spoke of the slaughter of the innocents. And that is, as Matthew tells us, was final fulfillment. That was the final epic end of this weeping of Rachel. How do we know when ancient biblical prophecies have future fulfillment? Especially in our day. How do we look back and see? What's the test? Because as you know, we've talked about some heretical teachings and some cultish activities. How do you know if someone comes along and says, well, this prophecy of old is about me or about our group? How do you test it? How do you know? Bottom line. Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us when and how prophecy is fulfilled. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. Scripture is very clear on it. Verse 17. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children will return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. Now watch this, note it. He says, for after I turned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Here what we get is the voice of Ephraim, northern Israel, crying out, in repentance. In other words, God heard what Ephraim proclaimed, but notice the order of it. He says, first, after I turned back, I repented. Well, that seems a little backwards. Shouldn't you repent and then turn back? Isn't that kind of the process we think? No, no. He says, after I turned back, I repented. Repentance, note this, sometimes repentance follows return. Repentance follows Return. Sometimes you think it before you feel it. And sometimes you, you get it in your head before your heart wants to move. We know in our heads what is right to do, but we don't always feel like doing it. Let me encourage you if you're ever in that place. Return anyway. Return anyway. I don't feel like repenting. doesn't matter. If you know it's right to do it, do it. If you know you're caught up in something that is opposed to the Lord and you don't want to stop doing it, stop doing it. Even before your heart is ready to repent, return and then repentance will follow. There's this amazing principle that when we act out the truth, when we walk in the truth, whether we feel like it or not, our hearts eventually align to it and we start to feel like it. You know, Paul talks about beating his body to make it a slave. 
<laughs> what does he mean by that? That he's actually thrashing on himself? No. He says, I, I discipline myself. Well, discipline is not often a felt thing. Discipline oftentimes doesn't feel good at all, at least at first. When you first started going to the gym, Glenn, when you first started going, did you want to? How about now? Same idea. Apply that spiritually. You may not want to do it, but if you will follow, if you will go ahead and return, repentance can follow. You see, repentance catches up to your heart. And we also see here, not only after I turned back, I repented, but after I was instructed, I smote my thigh. In other words, realization often follows repentance. So here's the pattern. You return first, that leads to repentance, which then leads to realization. What do you mean? After I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. What does that mean? To smote on the thigh. It's not a phrase we use a lot. Ezekiel 21.12, Ezekiel uses the same phrase. He says, Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. It is against all the officials of Israel. They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh. And the saying to strike the thigh indicated a painful realization. You know, I, I almost, well, I'll use it. Shouldn't because it's kind of lame. But you know the old, I could have had a V8. It's that idea, but add a whole load of pain. It's a painful realization. It's, I get it. I understand. In Ephraim's case, he finally realizes what he repented of. He returns, he repents, but it's only after repentance that the realization comes. It's saying, oh Lord, now I get it. I had to come back, didn't really feel like it, but after I came back, I started to realize it was a good thing, so I repented. But once repentance came, only then do I realize the significance of the repentance. I gave my life to the Lord when I was 10 years old. I was baptized in my, my home swimming pool, my parents' swimming pool. As a 10-year-old kid. And as a 10-year-old kid, for years I wandered deep in sin. Lost. Come on, I was 10 years old. I didn't know the pain of sin. I didn't understand the depth of my depravity. I knew it was right. I knew I needed to repent. I knew I wanted to give my life to the Lord. But I didn't get all that I understand now. It's only now that I... I get it. I understand. It's an understanding so big it's not felt until after the fact. And by the way, it brings sense to a passage I have read to you multiple times. Zechariah 12.10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, that's a future prophecy of what's going to happen when the people of Israel see Jesus coming in His glory. They're going to weep and mourn. But I've always wondered about this. These are Jews who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, during the first three and a half years. At the midpoint, they get rescued. The place in the wilderness. They survive the sword. They find grace in the wilderness. They go to a place protected for them in the wilderness. For three and a half years, they are under the protection of the Lord. And then they see Jesus come. And then they weep and mourn. And I, I would read that before. Well, why don't they weep and mourn when they, when they repent? 
when they come to faith in Jesus. It's only after they see Him coming, after they see the scars, that the full realization of what they had repented of three and a half years earlier was truly all about. They see Jesus and they weep. Did you get choked up on on Sunday morning when the kids did the skit? Man! You know, I'm sitting over here trying to be all pastorly and keep it straight and everything. And they're doing, and it's just, it was just our teenagers, you know? I mean, I've seen them pick their noses. These are just our teenagers. I've seen them average, normal, doing teenage stuff. Not that teenagers are the only ones who pick, but they're up here, and all of a sudden, I'm, as many of you were caught in this realization of what Jesus did. And if you didn't see the skit, there's a, there's a point in it where where the character um, playing Jesus he, he comes up and all of the sin and all the evil is, is is after the gal sitting up in the front and the Jesus persona comes up and gets in between her and all of that evil and spreads his arms and he is just taking the beating. And when that happened, I mean, I just the tears came to my eyes. It was the realization once again of what God has done in Jesus. The realization that has come long after repentance. And every now and then that happens again. It's the smiting of the thigh. It's the it's that realization once again. What have you done to save me, Lord? Amazing. After I turned back, I repented. After I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. What does Ephraim realize? They realize grace. And when grace hits, when you really get it, it's an amazing thing. Verse 20, the Lord speaks, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? I would say, no. Are you kidding? But these questions beg a yes. Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up for yourself road marks. A place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. Return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these your cities. And again, God is directing His people not to a new way, not to a different way, but to the way by which you went to the ancient path. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. God says the ancient way is the only way. Walk in it. Verse 22, How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Now this is a fascinating verse and is probably one of the most disputed in all of Jeremiah. The Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. There's no consensus among Bible scholars as to what this means. Show me five Bible scholars and I will show you five different views of what Jeremiah 31.22 is actually saying here. And I really struggle with this, and I prayed over this one. The Hebrew word encompass, sabab, means to encircle 
or it means to surround. It, it can be one of two things here. It can be threatening, as in overpowering. You know, sabab. A woman will overpower a man, will encompass a man in a threatening way, as though an army encircling their foe. And that would fit the context. Some believe the woman to be Israel, and the man representative of the goyim, the nations. That the weaker vessel, the woman, no offense ladies, don't throw anything, the, the weaker woman somehow overcomes the strong man. Israel overcoming the nations. A complete turnabout of events where Israel ultimately encompasses the nations of the earth. And the context might warrant that view. It's a good perspective. But sabab, to encircle, to encompass, can also be protecting. The picture of a mother hen encircling her chicks, wrapping her wings around, protecting her young ones, encompassing as in an embrace like a mother surrounding a child. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 tells us Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke 12, uh, uh, 2 verse 12 says this will be a sign for you, the angel speaking to the shepherds, you'll find the baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger, and there's a picture there of the woman encompassing the Son of Man. So perhaps, and some think that Verse 22 is speaking of Mary and speaking of Jesus. And the early church fathers, many of them taught this very perspective that this was a reference to Jesus' birth. And that falls in line with the event back in verse 15, the voice heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. So maybe these are both prophetic references to the birth of Christ. Well, Pastor Rick, which one is it? I have no earthly idea. Because both of those perspectives have legitimate uh, context to them here in the passage. It may be prophetic of Mary encompassing Jesus, even bearing the Son of Man, encompassing Him in her womb. And of course it says, the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. The new thing speaks of something supernatural, something miraculous, something beyond the ability of man to do which a virgin birth would certainly fit that, wouldn't it? But so would the virgin daughter of Israel encompassing the nations. That's unheard of. That's an impossibility when you look at the world right now. And yet, the passage tells us that's exactly what's going to happen. So it could go either way. Study it through, pray it through. Let me know what you come up with. Verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. And here's the word. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill, speaking of Jerusalem. Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. So apparently, Jeremiah received this prophecy in a dream. And it was a good dream. He woke up refreshed. He woke up pleased, like you do after you have just a pleasant dream. 